From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. Today we continue looking at the growth and development of the Lansing Community College campus in downtown Lansing. And this is part three of a three-part episode. In parts one and two, we looked at the formation of Lansing Community College, the acquisition of the land that Lansing Community College now occupies in downtown Lansing, and how certain buildings came into existence and what their purposes were for when they were built. We're going to really continue along that theme here as we get into part three of this series. Now, if you haven't had a chance to listen to parts one and two, those episodes are available on demand, and you can find them at lccconnect.org, and you will be able to get the backstory behind some of the stuff that we're going to look at in this episode. In the mid-1970s, Lansing Community College embarked upon and completed one of the greatest, actually to this day it still is the greatest in terms of size and impact it would have, building projects that the college had ever undertaken. And that was a completion of the Gannon Building. The Gannon Complex is probably really more of an accurate way of describing that when it was first built and how it has functioned through the years. So the Gannon Building was called the Gannon Vocational Technical Building for quite some time because it had a major component of LCC's vocational technical programs located in it. But the building was also built with a uh, gymnasium in it and had a big parking ramp attached to it. Had, I speak in the past tense, because that parking ramp that was built as the original part of that structure has been demolished. And as I record this episode, the parking ramp that has replaced that old parking ramp is now nearing completion. In fact, I drove by it just the other day and noticed that it looks like it's just about ready to have cars come into it and uh, have people start parking. So by the time the Gannon Complex was completed in the mid-1970s, the campus of Lansing Community College definitely had taken on the form that it more or less has now. And this is especially the case after the Washington Mall came into existence as Washington Avenue was closed off to vehicular traffic. And that's something that was covered quite a bit uh, in part two of this series. So in this episode, we're going to look at uh, two other buildings that are of particular importance that have been built since the completion of the Gannon Complex in the mid-1970s. And then we're going to look at some more general themes and ideas of looking at Lansing Community College's campus as a whole as to where it fits into downtown Lansing. And that is a theme uh, that we have explored both in part one and part two of this series. So picking up our story with the completion of the Gannon Building and the closing of Washington Avenue through the LCC campus to vehicular traffic, we now have a Lansing Community College campus that very much is devoted to pedestrians. And this contrasts quite a bit with some of the community college campuses that were being built, not only in Michigan, but around the United States as a whole at this time. 
The great wave of suburbanization and automobile culture, which proliferates, especially in the two decades, three decades after the Second World War, uh, was something that played out in the construction of community college campuses all across the United States. Oftentimes, these were built uh, either as one gigantic building that sat in an even larger parking lot or as a couple of large buildings or a handful of large buildings that were nonetheless surrounded by enough parking spaces that theoretically uh, nearly all the students who were taking classes at that particular school would be able to drive their cars there and park them. And one could travel to other places in Michigan and see community colleges that were built along this mindset. Some of the community colleges that were built uh, in this 1960s time period were indeed devoted to the automobile. They were designed to get people there uh, with a car, but they still had um, some very impressive urban planning and architectural designing uh, that went into them. For example, at Delta College, uh, which is located in a town, or at least a postal distinction, called University Center in the Saginaw Bay City Midland area, uh, it has a very well-known architectural feature to it, and that is a central courtyard that was designed by none other than Alden B. Dow, a very prominent mid-century modern uh, architect who had uh, quite a bit of activity in Michigan at the time period. And the uh, Dow designed lights that are uh, part of that courtyard, as well as a pool and, and the landscaping are still a central part of Delta College's campus. So the, the fact that a college campus could be built really anywhere, um, and then the different forms that some of these took on, but most of them being uh, forms that were, well, like Delta College, intended to be a place that people drove to, that tended to be the, uh, the major theme when we're looking at the development of community colleges in that 1960s time period in Michigan. So Lansing Community College then is distinct from the others uh, in that aspect, that it uh, was built downtown and remains there to this day in terms of the college's main campus. The construction of the college campus did not stop with the building of the Gannon Building in the 1970s. If we imagine we are leaving the Gannon building in the center of the building and exiting out onto the Washington Mall, the road that I've talked about quite a bit that one time was open to vehicular traffic, and walk about uh, 60 yards or so across that mall, we are going to enter into a building called Dart Auditorium. And the history of Dart Auditorium is not quite as far back as some of the other buildings that are on campus, but now that we are in the uh, second decade of the, well, actually the third decade of the 21st century, we can look at Dart Auditorium as an example of the latter part of the 20th century uh, architectural styles. So that building was built in 1980, and it was a performing arts center named in honor of the uh, first, one of the first board of trustees at Lansing Community College, John H. Dart, and has been known for many years simply as Dart Auditorium. And it is a brick building, it has a darker colored brick facade that is pretty common with buildings that were built right about 1980. Indeed, there are several other buildings in downtown Lansing that uh, date back to that time period that have that darker uh, brick facade. And I'm sure that many of you can imagine 
more than one building that you've been into or driven or walked by uh, in your life that has that darker, uh, it's almost like a purple color if you look at it really closely, a dark, dark red uh, brick that was quite common at that time period. DART seats 480 people, and it has been the Lansing Community College Performing Arts Center there for, uh, since 1980. Now, the one thing that I didn't mention that I would very much like to hear and talk about a bit more, actually, is what we walked through and over to go across the Washington Mall from the Gannon Building 2 Dart Auditorium. So we are now going to pretend for a moment that we did not walk into Dart Auditorium. We are going to think about standing outside of that Washington Mall entrance to the Gannon Building and looking out we notice a slight hill that has an amphitheater built into the side of it that's facing us and also has this beautiful 40-foot tall structure that is a sculpture located on the hill's summit. Now, it's not a really big hill, so I guess to call it the hill's summit may be a bit of a uh, stretch, but nonetheless, it's the highest point of elevation on Lansing Community College's campus, and that hill has a very interesting history to it. And in all honesty, when I first started teaching at Lansing Community College, I used to walk around the campus and think, this is really impressive here. This looks like a university campus, only smaller. And even then, not that much smaller compared to some of the uh, smaller colleges anyways that I've been to before. But one of the things that always struck me about the campus was that little hill there. And the other thing that, well, along the same lines used to kind of strike me about it was that the Gannon building uh, was actually built into the side of a hill. And it's not uncommon for buildings to be built into the side of a hill at all. It's been done as long as buildings have been being built. And indeed, many of you may live in a house that was built into the side of a hill. But what surprised me about that was, from a quick glance, Lansing Community College's campus, like much of the city of Lansing, looks incredibly flat. Flat so much that any hill is kind of surprising to encounter. And so when I first walked into the Gannon building and realized that, wow, this building is built on the side of a hill, I kind of scratched my head a little bit because I couldn't notice immediately any hill uh, that the building could have been built into. But actually... If you stand on Grand Avenue, which is the road that abuts the other side of the Gannon Building, from where we are standing in our imaginarium right now of our mind, uh, you can notice that actually, yes, there is a very slight rise in elevation as one travels westward from Grand Avenue, Grand Avenue being just a couple feet in elevation above the Grand River. And the Grand River, not far at all from there, uh, for the roughly half the year that leaves are off the deciduous trees in this area, one can see the Grand River clearly from not only Grand Avenue, but from various spots in the Gannon Building, actually, uh, including the lovely glass facade uh, commons area that encompasses the northeast corner of that building. So, actually, Lansing Community College's campus isn't flat, and my quick glance at it at my first uh, stroll around the college campus was therefore deceiving me. And sometimes that is the joy of uh, discovery, actually. So the story I'm relating to you right now is me reliving the first uh, encounter, the first experience I had with campus at Lansing Community College. And what is really neat to look back on that is to think about uh, all these years later, 
all of the things that one learns about one's environment immediately and then over a long period of time or a longer period of time. And then what is really fun to do, which is what I'm doing right now in some ways, is to think back to the comparison of the knowledge that one now has about something uh, to what that knowledge base looked like 10, 15, uh, 20 years ago, however long ago uh, one is thinking back to. So, to get our mind back to our imaginary stroll around Lance Community College's campus, it's taking place right now in our world, no matter where or how we are connected in engaging in this uh, imaginary walkthrough. We are once again standing outside the Gannon Building and we're looking at that hill. And on the hill, the top of the hill, is a beautiful structure. It is a 40-foot tall structure called Upward Bound. And Upward Bound was a gift of Lansing Community College, or gift to Lansing Community College, by the Abood family. And the gift was made in 2019, which is when the sculpture was constructed. And it is an absolutely outstanding piece of art that serves, I think, as a complementary piece, and in many ways a centerpiece to all of the other structures that are on the college campus, including the dozens of sculptures that are on Lansing Community College's campus or within walking uh, distance of the college campus. So in the year 2019, Upward Bound was put on that hill. But what stood on that hill before? And chronologically speaking, as we're walking right by that hill in our imaginary walk and we're looking up at it, it is really hard now uh, to think back to maybe 40 or 50 years ago and uh, imagine what, what that area looked like. But we're going to try to do so. And in doing so, we turned the big gigantic clock that has the hands of time on it back to the 1970s. And in the 1970s, there was a house that had already stood on that hill for at least 50 years at that point. The house was called the Turner House. Now, you have to be careful here, because Lansing has a very well-known and a not-so-well-known, but nonetheless very historic uh, set of houses in it that are both, in one way or another, named Turner. There's the Turner Dodge House that is located on North Grand River Avenue, and it is a structure that's one of the oldest in Lansing. The original part of that house was built way back in 1855, and then it underwent a uh, dramatic renovation in the early 1900s. The size of the house is basically doubled, and uh, major changes were made to the architectural style of it. Uh, a very well-known Lansing architect by the name of Darius Moon um, is the one who carried out the renovations that were done on that house in the early 1900s. So that house has an incredible history to it. And it is a museum that's open to the public right now. And so I would encourage, if you have never been there before, to go there. It's quite remarkable to see. And then, not too far from the uh, Turner Dodge House, really the other side of the Grand River and uh, about a quarter mile to the west is a less-known house in Lansing that's called the Smith-Turner House. And it sits on the corner of Grand River Avenue and Walnut Street. Now, Lansing is a confusing place to drive around or walk around if one is going to try to find an address that bears the name of Grand River Avenue. 
And for those of us who either have lived around here a long time or folks that are native uh, to this area, we, I think, sometimes forget about that fact. So Grand River Avenue runs in different parts of Lansing. And in fact, Lansing has a corner, a street corner, that happens to be the corner of Grand River Avenue and Grand River Avenue. It's, it's a terribly confusing thing to try to explain, and I shall not do it at this point. However, I mention it because, in reference to this other Turner House, the Smith-Turner House, it is on Grand River Avenue, however, it is not on the same road that the Turner Dodge House that is also on a Grand River Avenue. So, with that said, the reason why I mention those two houses that bear the Turner name is because Turner is a historic uh, and, and uh, very well-known family in the Lansing area. They're one of the founding families of this area, uh, the Lansing area, mid-Michigan region. And indeed, as evidence of the Turner Dodge house uh, being built way back in 1855, they're a family that have been in this area for as long as people have uh, settled in the area since it was named the state's capital. The Turner House, though, that we want to focus on is one that doesn't stand anymore, and that is the house that did at one time stand on the top of that hill, the hill that now has the sculpture upward bound sitting more or less exactly where the Turner House once stood. The Turner House was not as old as the other two houses with the name Turner in them that I've mentioned here. This house was built in the early part of the 20th century, and it had, by the time uh, of the construction of Dart Auditorium, by 1980, that house had served uh, a variety of roles, one of which being the Historical Society of Michigan's museum. That was the State History Museum. And... It served that role for quite some time, and when the uh, construction of Dart Auditorium commenced, however, that building uh, had to be torn down, that house did. So the Turner House was torn down, and it is not the only house, actually, that once stood where Lansing Community College's campus is located now. Uh, I've talked about the houses that do still stand uh, in Part 1, actually, of this uh, series, Episode Part 1. We looked at the Rogers Carrier House and the Herman House. Uh, as I also mentioned in that episode, as where Lansing Community College now stands, was kind of a split between a residential and a commercial district in the city. Uh, there were a number of homes that were built back in the 1800s or the early 1900s that people lived in uh, in that neighborhood. And like any city, as, as time goes on, areas of a city change. That happened here in Lansing. Um, and Lansing Community College is absolutely emblematic of that. And in fact, if we uh, imagine for a moment what it looked like to have not only the Turner House sitting there on top of that small hill, but also uh, there was another house located very near where the Dart Auditorium is located now. And then imagine walking down Capitol Avenue in the south direction uh, through Lansing Community College's campus, and we come across the corner of Shiawassee Street in Capitol Avenue, and uh, the previous episodes we talked about what buildings used to stand on the northwest corner. Well, if we turn our attention to the other side, the other corner, that would be the northeast corner, uh, of that corner of Capitol and Shiawassee, now there's a building there called the TLC building. 
And uh, TLC stands for Technology and Learning Center. Actually, the full name of the building is Abel B. Sykes Technology and Learning Center, named after the second president of Lansing Community College, Abel Sykes. And the TLC building was built in 1988, and it recently underwent a renovation every bit as substantial as some of the other campus renovations that uh, Lansing Community College has, has undergone over the last decade or so. And that renovation was completed uh, really just at the end of last year, right here at the beginning of this year, which is 2022. And it has uh, really an, an absolutely outstanding, uh, just almost hard to describe really, uh, look and feel to it inside. It is a library as well as a uh, student learning center that is really the way that I think libraries and other areas on uh, college campus are intended to help students is going to look well into the you know the the coming decades. So it's a fascinating building in in the fact that during a relatively short history, it's only been around for about twenty five years. Uh, it's already undergone one major renovation, but continues to serve the purpose uh, for which it was built. And in that building actually are the uh, studios for LCC Connect. So by your very act of listening to this program, by golly, you have a connection to that building, whether you realize it or not. Now you do. And uh, that building has uh, a variety of other activities that go on it as well. A lot of the college's IT operations are centered in that building uh, it has study spaces, group study rooms, a lot of computers, flexible classrooms, all kinds of things that are necessary for that type of learning facility here in the uh, in the 21st century. And I I don't know that I can say it's the beginning of the 21st century anymore because we're a couple years into the third decade now. So that is uh, that's what happens though for for all of us. So our look at the uh, history of Lansing Community College in this three-part episode is done for now, but certainly not done forever. Far from it. Uh, be sure and check back in in uh, the coming weeks because we are going to be featuring some of the buildings that have been mentioned, some of the places that have been mentioned here uh, on this episode uh, and part two and part one of this series, but also some places that have not been mentioned yet. Uh, in this three-part episode series that I think in many ways continue with that story, that story of Lansing Community College, Lansing Community College's campus, and where that campus, that college, fits into the, the past and present and, of course, the future of Lansing. So I hope you've really enjoyed our look at uh, all of this so far and very much want to leave you with a thirst for more knowledge, knowledge of the area, and that will be forthcoming. So uh, until then, it's been absolutely great having you all here. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Sewick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories.
featuring the faculty, staff, students, and others that helped to make Lansing's premier college what it is today. LCC Connect, Mid-Michigan's connection to Lansing Community College. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. The Lansing Community College Foundation provides scholarships that make education possible, change students' lives, and uplift our community. The foundation annually accepts scholarship applications from November through January. Learn more at lcc.edu scholarships. You may be one of the 1 in 26 Americans who will develop epilepsy in their lifetime. To help the millions of people who experience their first seizure each year and the physicians who care for them, the American Academy of Neurology and the American Epilepsy Society have released a new guideline on how to treat a first seizure. It shows there is strong evidence that for adults who have had a first seizure, the risk of another seizure is greatest within the first two years. The risk ranges from about a 1 in 5 chance to nearly a 1 in 2 chance. But the guideline also found that taking epilepsy drugs immediately after a first seizure may reduce the risk of having another seizure. If you have had a first seizure, it is important that you talk with your neurologist and have a meaningful conversation so that your individual circumstances, balance of risks and benefits, and personal preferences are understood and accounted for before starting any treatment. To learn more about epilepsy, visit AAN.com. That's AAN.com. Lansing Community College's downtown and west campus offer newly renovated conference and event spaces that can accommodate over 500 attendees. Professional event planners are available to guide you through your experience from setup to catering. LCC offers convenient locations, state-of-the-art technology and hybrid meeting capabilities, in-house catering, free event parking, and on-site customer service. For more information about LCC's conference and event spaces or to request a rental quote, please contact LCC's conference services at lcc-events at lcc.edu. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. You're listening to Art Happens Here, the podcast that explores the often curious and occasionally amazing art installations on, in, and around the campuses of Lansing Community College. I'm your host, Bruce Mackley. Well, in today's program, I am quite thrilled to introduce um, a gentleman who has contributed to LCC's profile in the fine arts arena. Uh, he's done a few works for us, and he is an artist's artist. Um, Joshua Reisner, welcome to Art Happens Here. Thank you. It's yeah. nice to be here. Yeah. Well, um, I, I've been looking forward to this for quite some time, and we hadn't met up until today personally, but I do remember um, one of the paintings that you did for us uh, a few years back. There was a, an unveiling, and it was it was really, really cool. And that painting resides now in our um, Gannon building. And we, we'll touch on uh, touch on that a little bit later. Tell us a little bit about your history. Where are you from originally, Josh? I'm from a small town in Ohio named Greenwich. Um, 
people used to say there's no stoplights and no restaurants or anything significant there. There's about 1,400 people. Not a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say a lot of art there to, to, to speak of. But uh, that's where that's where I'm from. That's where I started. I I was there until about I was the age of 22, maybe 23. So you were really like there during the formative years. Yeah, I actually, um, yeah, I, I ended up landing in a company there. There was an advertising company, a billboard company that mm -hmm. was uh, based in that town. So mm -hmm. that's how I ended up staying there even longer because I accidentally kind of fell into that. Cool. Now, with the artwork in the small town environment. Did that environment and its uh, presumed lack of um, metropolitan activities, did that kind of push you into, into art, I mean, into doing art? What influenced you was early on? Comic books, movies, music, all of the above? You know, I, I wish I was one of the artists that was like that, you know, that was in the comic books and was always drawing and and uh, people are always shocked to hear this, but I was hyper competitive and I was really into basketball. Really? And, uh, and you know, why that matters, because I wasn't a kid who like spent a lot of time in his room drawing. But I, I, you know, as I got older, I realized that like I've always been a maker. Like I've always been somebody who like is daydreaming about grand ideas of what mm -hmm. to build. When I was younger, I always wanted to build a house of some sort that was magical. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I was always painting things or drawing things, but I don't think the town made me want culture. When you grow up in a town like that, I don't think you even know you don't have culture That's or you don't have like a broad view. But I think there was like, I think you'll pick up in this conversation. I tend to have this sort of, um, draw towards the mystery. Mm -hmm. Like there's something that's always drawing me. Like I've always had this sort of vision of, of, some kind of epic journey really? and uh i didn't know what that was and I'm, I'm not sure i'm even on it anymore mm -hmm. or you know mm -hmm. what kind of journey it is but when i was a kid i just think i always had you know a bigger vision i wanted more but yeah. i don't know what that was oh that's uh, that okay very intriguing and uh you know it raises a question that i've had in my mind you know given the context of today's uh media consumption uh, and I, I, I point to Instagram and some of the things that, you know, um, that I follow on Instagram. The talent out there is mind-bending. It's mind-blowing, the, the, the level and the amount of creative thought. It, you know, I don't know how I would have done young uh, being confronted with that if it would have, you know, if it would have um, spurred me on or if it would have discouraged me. I don't know because it's so... And it's, I guess it's always been the case, you know, you could go to the library when you were a kid and be overwhelmed that way, I suppose. Um, well, just for some context, let's just skip, a, skip ahead real quick to what you do now to give our audience an idea of the scope of your, uh, your responsibility today. Um, I, I guess I tell people now that I'm a portrait artist, mm -hmm. but I still do a lot of different things. Um, I mean, my main income now is commissioned work. Mm -hmm. Um, tends to be politicians. Mm -hmm. Um, but I still do like my own work. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I compartmentalize all kinds of different things at this point. I'm also the artist in residence for the state Capitol, mm -hmm. which means all kinds of things. Uh, not, you know, I take care of the portrait collection there, mm -hmm. make a lot of decisions just aesthetically about mm -hmm. which direction we're going in the building. Yeah. And I also have like a background in, 
um, building and, and conservation and wow. trying to, you know, actually one of my, I think, n- things I've learned over the years is how to deconstruct all processes. Hmm. So I can basically look at anything and figure out how it was done in a particular time period. And so that helps with like a building or even, you know, recreating portraits from the 19th century or, you know, to my paintings now where the processes are directly uh, influenced by those, those processes and stuff that I've like discovered through like research and picked up along the way doing your thing. Yeah. I think some of that is just like a naturally um, inquisitive about processes and Mm -hmm. like, and, and, uh, you know, I used to, uh, so this hopefully leads into one of my first big jumps after being a sign painter for a few years was uh, I taught myself how to use Photoshop and Illustrator. And this was when, you know, the average person couldn't afford to buy like the Adobe, mm-hmm. like you you couldn't get a subscription and, and it was rare to find it. So you could get like bootleg copies, you know, oh, and remember. somebody, I borrowed one and I yeah. actually was disciplined enough to spend about a year like really learning it. What I realized is that I thought a lot like the way Photoshop worked, like my brain itself. Now I still had to learn the, the details of it, but I worked in layers. Like I could see layers, yeah. like in a building, I could see layers in a painting. I could see, la- I could see how those interactions and, um, can't remember exactly how I got there, but, uh, right. I think that there's something natural about that, that that was there, although I've picked up things too, but there's something about the way my brain works that has helped me in all those areas, you know. Well, you um, mentioned discipline, and I always fold in uh, curiosity with that, uh, just inquisitiveness. Um, yeah, I, same thing with the Adobe Suite and myself, you know, years ago, and just thrashing around and making mistakes and learning and getting it hardwired that way than rather you know, the straight trench, you know, what's the thing with the learning they compare to uh, a weaving, uh, you know, meandering stream versus a, a straight trench cut in the ground with, yeah. the, with the learning process. Um, and the disciplinary thing is, is key too. I'm sure to what, to what you do, you know, there's a quote somewhere I'm reminded of that the, uh, the human brain is both a reality perceiving and a fantasy generating machine. Mm, that's so true. I often think about the jumps like, you you know, you imagine yourself like your brand, mm-hmm. you know, before brand was a cool term even, you know, like sure. when I was younger, like you imagine what you want to be, you know, you might say you're a mountain biker, but you mm-hmm. may not be a mountain biker. Right. You just want to be. It takes some kind of weird jump of discipline to like become that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't make that jump. And I remember like with Photoshop or graphic des- being a graphic designer, I I just specifically remember the jump and I remember the difference between the other things I identified with that I didn't actually become because I never actually disciplined enough to jump in and actually do it for a period of time Uh without, you know, somebody else forcing me or having even having commissions or anything, you know, you just, you know, you just really focus in. And I think everything I've done has always kind of been that way where like there's a lot of things even now that I'd like to be, but for some reason, I just don't do it. Like I don't jump the way that I did as like a graphic designer or sign painter, graphic designer, portrait painter, those things like. Does it, does it have to do with your perception of the passing of time? In what way? What do you mean by that? Well, when we're younger, um, you know, the world's a mystery. And as we age, they call it the death of distance. 
when the world all of a sudden you can see it you know and and that, that oh man one, you're gonna start making me cry we're no, no. like an existential <laughs> well that, that, i mean like no man <laughs> the, the photo that the photo that they took of the earth you know the first photo from outer space and when we realized that's it i mean it's a yeah. dot yeah you know um and and given you know getting into broader philosophical issues i'll try to avoid but you know i have to touch on it you know when we're young anything's possible oh yeah and now you know time, the clock is ticking and there's so much to do there's so much to explore like for instance i'd like to get into stained glass will i ever do it probably not i want to get into this and then get into that and then you're you're wrestling with the creative side of mastering these things and, and it's just you only have one lifetime you know, so you have to be, uh, you have to be more selective with where you purpose yourself. Oh man, you are speaking my language. I think yeah. when you turn a certain age, I was just talking to, I have an apprentice over at the Capitol who's, uh, turning into a great painter and it's sometimes hard to, he's a young guy, he's like 28. And I keep saying like, there's something that shifts when you start recognizing time. You mm -hmm. And I don't know, like people talk about it, but it's hard to, you feel it and you, you can't hardly explain it, but it changes. It does change the way you approach these things like art, like stained glass. I mean, I, I've always wanted to do stained glass yeah. myself and I, I've done a few pieces, but it's weird to come to a place where you realize you won't probably ever be as good at stained glass as you are as port at portrait painting, because I'll never mm -hmm. have the time. I won't have the, you know, the 40 years or whatever to focus in on stained glass yeah. that I did for portrait painting. So yeah. It's hard to come to terms with that, especially if you're a person who wants to, uh, yeah, you have a lot of uh, big ideas. But there's, there's, there's definite value in, in dipping your foot in something and to say that, yeah, I did try it without getting pulled in and, and beating yourself up and expecting too much. Yeah, I think, I think there's this weird thing that I've wrestled with for years trying to um, deal with the object, like trying to wrestle with the, the importance of, of valuing the object that you create mm -hmm. or value, valuing the process of creating that object. I feel like those are two different things. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, I don't know how this relates, but I do, I do remember specifically thinking I'm going to have to focus on painting. If I want to be great at something, like I have to focus. And I, and I did, and it's kind of funny because like about three years ago I thought, did I do too much of that? Like, did I focus too much? Because now I'm like, I'm really good at that. I think, you, you know, are. most people would say that. And it's hard to be, it's hard to do stained glass now because I'm starting at one uh, and yeah. I'm at eight or, you know, something in, in painting. And it's really, it's that, that's the difficulty when you're 23 and you're starting things where well, you're at, you're at, a. a uh, hobbyist level on everything. So mm -hmm. it's like, I can do all of this. But once you get good at something, I think it makes it harder to jump into other things because you're like, it's harder to accept and be humble about yeah. the beginning, you know? Yeah. And I just, to our listeners, uh, check him out, check out his work. You know, uh, Josh is an artist's artist. He, uh, he's what I feel he's mastered, mastered oil painting and he's done a number of works, uh, beautiful works. Um, and, and I have to point this out on your website, under your bio information, you list everything. And there's a delineation, you know, like it or not, between fine art and commercial art. The two camps, they have their respective philosophies, and we could talk for days on this, on this specific issue. That being said, uh, many fine art types will downplay or they will um, dismiss the value of commercial endeavor, commercial creative endeavor. Right. 
Um, and I think that's unfortunate. And on your site, I noticed you, um, along with your education, you have a uh, Master's of Fine Art from Kendall College, you know, a bachelor's from Ashland University. Um, you've been in brand development, print, copywriting, web design, photography, sign painting back when, you know, what haven't you done, Josh? And given that context, it, it provides this uh, snapshot of foundational learning in saying that you, you know, you taught yourself Photoshop. I would hazard a guess that you probably, you, you teach yourself. Now, you went to Kendall, I get it, but you probably walked into that classroom with a working knowledge of oil painting and they just sharpened you up a bit. Is that true? Well, actually, in today's world, um, academic art world, I don't think they teach you to paint. Like, I don't think I ta was taught anything about how to paint in yeah. all of my degrees. I think that there's a more there's more of an emphasis on how to think about art. Really? And I, and I actually don't think a lot of it is very positive for art because like we talked about before, like being in the flow is one of the things that thinking about art mm -hmm. too much sort of is an obstacle to. That being said, like, um, I, I believe I am a self-directed learner, you know, like I, I teach myself most things, although as I get older, that's, I think I've become less patient with that process. Mm -hmm. um, but I do, that, that being said, I respect one of my bachelor's painting professors. I always say, you know, he didn't teach me to paint because I had, I had went back later. I was 30 mm -hmm. when I went back to school to get a bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. um, but he taught me to think, to be like critical of what I was doing. He didn't accept what I was doing like straight out. And it taught me to like really think about how to, um, really put meaning in my work put meaning in, or, or gonna, at least find meaning in my work <laughs> okay i'm going to translate that a little bit sorry if you did no just humor me and if i'm wrong call me on it um did he teach you to be self-critical no okay he directed me I okay think, a little bit in okay that. i know creatives that can never achieve what they think they want to achieve and it's 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 hard um, seeing that, seeing people that are miserable, uh, recognizing whatever limitations, self-imposed limitations they have. So I'm glad that's not the case with you um, because your work is very, you know, it's very expansive. Um, and I can see why it's so so widely and deeply appreciated. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It does, uh, I don't want to go off on that too much, but no, I do fine. think it's harder. I have found that as uh, as I develop, I keep trying to talk about this with other artists or younger artists, but uh, I think sometimes it's hard to understand the role of self-criticism at a certain point. As you get better at something, your world gets bigger, I think. Mm -hmm. You learn more. Yeah. You learn more and more. And then that, that criticism, in some ways, can be that self-criticism, I feel like, can be harmful. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and it's at different stages. It's at a real value, you know, but then it at a certain stage, and I sometimes think at the stage where I'm at, you, you almost need to just rely. You know, you hear these athletes talk about, like, I just rely on the hard work and the practice. Mm -hmm. Try mm -hmm. to get into the flow, you know. Mm -hmm. And and, and, they, and they don't, they're not critical in the moment. They got to try to find a way into the flow and not think too much. And I feel like where I'm at now, I'm trying to learn to be that person where it's like, okay, I've put in the time. I've mm -hmm. done this. Mm -hmm. I can, like, s stop overthinking things, you know, like, Think you can think too much too, and, and sort right. of like create an obstacle that 
You're right. It's hard to like overcome. Yeah. So. The flow. Um, Josh and I were talking earlier about the flow or what some people would call being in the zone. <clears throat> Excuse me. The creative zone, the athletic zone, the scientific numbers crunching, whatever you have, um, there is a, a state, there's a mental state creatively. Uh, I've been in a few times myself where time stands still and you're, it, it's hard to describe that you feel like you, the fabric of creativity, you're woven in with it and everything you do, it just comes together. Um, and artists have tried to be able to turn that on and off and I don't know anyone that succeeded. But not clouding your, your mind with needless, you know, needless things like self-criticism or expectations. Deadlines are horrible for that. Yeah, that's hard. That's been a, yeah. that's, that's always a problem. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think becoming like, yeah, I think becoming okay and being patient with the process, like recognizing that it's not all just like self, like enforced will on the object. Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, sometimes like you just wake up and you're not like it doesn't come out right and the yeah. next day you wake up and you paint something and you forget how you even did it but man it's like oh that was beautiful how did i do that i don't even i wouldn't be able to recreate it so yeah, I don't, i've heard I don't that know. over and over again and this comes in where um creative types are also technicians of the craft a lot of people think oh you just wake up and you're an artist and the paint flows no you have to know the paper the brush you're using the medium you're using the light, the humidity. I've known artists that have these studios with natural daylight come in. They feel that is the most authentic way to capture what they're trying to do, to get to as close as, as possible to the real. Um, in looking at your body of work, I'm curious, do you have a favorite piece? And do you have any that fell short? And why did they fall short? Start um, with the favorites. I have a couple favorites. Um, one of them is called prayer. And uh, w when I first started learning to paint, um, I always thought of, and I, you know, I don't want to go down like the too magical view of things okay. and make myself look for. like all whack, but <laughs> that's what we're here for. Um, I think when I first started, I was relying so much on, well, I was learning. So there was the technical aspect of things that mm -hmm. was like growing and I was like really pursuing that, but there was like an intuition. I was naive about things and I feel like I was intuiting a lot of things around me that I think in the, I sometimes think was magic. And, and I think maybe in the past would have been seen as more magical, but like the prayer is about, um, well, my, it's my wife, actually, she was the model mm -hmm. and, um, she's leaning over this nest like thing. And, and I, at the time I was really interested in this time period called symbolism. It's a 19th century art movement. So mm -hmm. I was just like trying not to be too illustrative about work. So I was thinking more in terms of like, uh, archetypes and, mm -hmm. and like the essence of things and stuff like that. So I painted this picture and my wife is like praying. She looks like she's kind of praying over this nest and, uh, it's funny because I didn't realize till years later that we had, you know, we'd had, like, she had wanted a child yeah. and there was like issues with that. I, I didn't for a period of time. Okay. And like, uh, and looking back on that painting, I yeah. just feel like that stuff comes out, like things come out yeah. that you, I wasn't, you know, I'd like to say that I was very intentional about it all. You know, yeah. I was intentional about like, this means this. And I put this person here and there, but the reality is that wasn't happening. I was being intentional about certain aspects, but the meaning 
and who I am and who my wife was and what I was interacting with, it yeah. just comes out. And that, ma that is like, I, I love that. I and that doesn't always that happen. <laughs> I want to look that up. And I'm going to impose another quote on you that, you know, when you talk about, in, you know, intuitiveness and, you know, um, going into something without um, too much burdening you. Uh, Picasso had a quote, and I'm not much of a Picasso fan. I, I, people are going to burn me for it, but I just, but this quote kind of made sense to me. Um, it was something along, and he had a way, he was, at age 15, he was doing hyper-realistic stuff. You know, 12, I mean, look at his work. As a child, obviously, he's a genius. Um, in the later work, and there was a quote that said something along the lines of, took me 60 years to see the world as a three-year-old sees the world. Um, and then it just came together because stripping down and deconstructing all the things that, you know, we get junked up with and having that, um, the source, that undiluted perceptive ability, you know, it just, it made perfect sense to me. So um, yeah. I think that painting, that's, that's perfect. Um, and that was a personal painting you did? Yeah. Uh, at that time I was, I, you know, I never, you know, this leads into other things, but I, you know, I was not, I was very idealistic. I was not painting for a, um, income. Mm -hmm. Now I, everything had always worked out because I was like, I think I, I think now looking back, you know, I was like aggressive and I was like determined, but I didn't have this idea that like I was going to make these paintings and sell them. So there's a lot of them that I have kept that were actually very personal. And I think there's some of them are good paintings, but, but I don't know that other, I don't know that they, I've always felt like my work doesn't have this sort of, ah, put this on the wall. Art for art's sake. Well, yeah, yeah no, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I, I don't know. I don't know if I agree art for art's sake either. Mm -hmm. Like, I, because that's like saying, I think that's one of those things that people like, that's like the art world says that, but there is no such thing as art for art's sake because even, even an artist that approaches that with that way, like mm -hmm. they're doing it with, they're instilling that meaning into it. Sure. Like the meaning of art for art's sake. Like if you think like a Jackson Pollock, like, mm -hmm. I mean, the meaning of that, what he was communicating was that, that he didn't want to have any meeting or it was about movement or whatever, sure. you know, like yeah. there's all, so the whole idea of that is puzzling to me, but mm -hmm. it's not that the, it's, I think the meaning, I think the meaning of some of my works that I like the most were, I would say, uh, subjective, a more subjective there was, hopefully there was something more universal in them, but the universal that was in them that other people could relate to. I don't know that they wanted to look at every day. I so don't the, think the personal things you did, you didn't set out to impart any type of feeling throughout they were just representations of of your creative spirit and of your thought processes yeah i mean i wanted to learn that was the first thing like mm -hmm. i really wanted to be i wanted to create a masterpiece in terms of technique but then at the same time i was trying to figure out a way to um and i think this was a counter to like the culture that i was in in like school mm -hmm. but i was trying to figure out a way to to capture something a little more timeless like the idea of motherhood or, 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 um, I don't know, like even being like, like seeking a creator or something like that. Like I, th I thought that there was things that were more timeless than the issues that academic art world was pushing everybody towards. Yeah. I felt like that was very limited to a particular time. And, and so I think those are the things I was pursuing. I don't think those things were always pleasant and joyful, you know, like, and that's what I'm trying to say. Like, I think 
What do you think? What did you think of the? Have you read The Invisible Dragon by Dave Hickey? No, no. Yeah. That sounds interesting. Uh, yeah, it was. <laughs> I wish yeah. I had. Now that. <laughs> well, it, it's. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't want to cut you off, but no, it's an inter- it's an interesting look at uh, the fine art world as it pertains to business and the valuation of fine art and how it's it's elevated and um, he, he lets the air out of it and it didn't make any friends in the fine art world but yeah. most of his calls were dead on um, about for instance um, if art is judged um, by beauty alone only on aesthetics then it's mere decoration it has to mean more you know that type of that type of mentality um, it's kind of interesting like one I don't I think this relates but it just might if this popped into my head but mm-hmm. one of the things I've tried not to do over the years is sign my work really and, yeah and it's it really I think it points to I mean I've read several books on the art world about like kind of what you're talking that are similar there's one called seven days in the art world that's mm-hmm. real similar that kind of reveals the underworkings but yeah I think that by signing it you're really pointing to something that's not the art itself like you're saying that there's a value in my and who I am like because mm-hmm. because I put my name on it it has value, let's say, uh-huh. where like would a Pollock or a Picasso have any value if their names weren't signed on it? Some of them may, yeah. but but there's this interesting thing I read, and I don't remember the details, but there's this um, this group going around that's trying to display paintings of famous artists along with like amateurs, and they're not putting any names on them. So uh-huh. when people go into the gallery, they look at them. Uh, and they interacted them without the brand attached because interesting i think it just blew my mind big i think it's really big but you know what's funny is dr knight didn't like me not signing my work and most of the people that buy don't like that but i do think Mm -hmm. it speaks to what you're buying to some degree and i don't know i don't know how i feel about that it's the business component and the valuation component of it it's like that old trick i remember a few years ago they had a elephant or a chimpanzee do some paintings and they put it in the gallery and they had the fine art people come in and they were like tripping over themselves how great it was and it was a big you know they they punked them yeah and they outed them you know with their their interpretive ability being miles above everyone else's very interesting not signing that would take a remarkable degree of first of all self-awareness and um guts you know especially with paying clients right yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's kind of interesting because you mentioned earlier too, like my uh, balance with the commercial world and like the fine art world and, mm-hmm. you know, like how I've interacted with both. And I and I do think now, yeah, at the time it didn't feel like it took guts because I was like, well, this makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to me it was, I was putting something out there that was way more important than myself in my mind. Yeah. Um, but you know, I don't know, like maybe I, maybe I needed to, I still don't know that I've completely accepted the idea that, that brand is something. Cause I, I, I think I make bad paintings still. Like, I think there are paintings that are bad and there are ones that are good and there shouldn't be just because I did it and because I made one good painting in my life, let's say like, mm-hmm. doesn't mean all my paintings are going to be good. It doesn't mean that at all. And I, and I think signing it kind of Locks like you saying in, that. Locks you in. Yeah, it's like, yeah. oh, yeah, well, this is... Not, and then I'm not saying my name has that at all, but... It, it uh, does. Uh, it does. Maybe a yeah, little. It does. But... Um, and it will, for m- more so. Yeah, looking at it, you know, it's uh, technically brilliant um, and expansive. I mean, and the fact that you're 
your your thought process is evolving as we're sitting here is is something too because some some artists just they get locked in and they're in the chair and they strap in that that's who i am that's me you know and their their entire identity is is finely crafted and you're you're going counter to that yeah i feel like i'm always trying to figure it out and i was just thinking about like the idea of signing how like when i had a kid five years ago his name's linus if he ever hears this oh yeah boy that really like it really changes your perspective because even like the idea of a legacy, like I didn't, I didn't like signing, signing a painting means something different when you think about your leaving, like your kid will be around, you know, a hundred years from now Mm. and maybe other family and they'll be like looking for your paintings. It's going to help if it's signed. That would be amazing. And I, and I didn't, you know, I never thought of that before. I was just like in living in like an ideal world where I'm just like, well, this is, if it's a great painting, it'll like last and somebody will figure it out. They will. So, but I don't, you know, I don't know. Well, you know what, Josh, we're running out of time for this segment. Uh, Josh Reisner, it's been a thrill talking to you and thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you. This has been great. Georgia O'Keeffe once said, I found I could say things with color and shapes that I couldn't say any other way. If you want to check out what I've been talking about, just visit this episode at lccconnect.org. Art Happens Here is a production of LCC Connect. Thanks for lending us your imagination. This is LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Lansing Community College is proud to present We're Better Than That, an anti-bigotry campaign. Embracing diversity is a continuing process, one that requires honesty, cooperation, and meaningful conversations. At Lansing Community College, we understand our journey towards inclusion and equity begins with an examination of how we relate to one another and a pledge to engage in the work necessary for meaningful progress to facilitate conversations and initiatives that will combat racism and hate speech in our college community. The Office of Diversity and Inclusion has partnered with the Office of Police and Public Safety to create We're Better Than That a comprehensive campaign to combat institutional bias and racism. To find out more about We're Better Than That, visit lcc.edu. Why is Connor having trouble focusing in school? Having trouble finding Connor's middle school? Would you like directions? No, why is Connor having trouble focusing in school? Finding lowest airfare to Istanbul. No, I'm, I'm tired of fighting with him over homework. Home, walk, restaurant. Need a review? No, I need help. He's very smart, but his mind wanders. He's disorganized. I think I understand. Oh, God. Finding best potatoes for french fries. No! Russet, fingerling, Yukon gold. Why don't you understand me? Sorry, I was trying to show how Connor feels every day. Frustrating, isn't it? Redirecting to understood.org. For the one in five kids with learning and attention issues, this is what life can feel like. Explore understood.org, a free online resource about learning and attention issues designed to help your child thrive in school and in life. Understood.org, because understanding is everything. Brought to you by understood.org and the Ad Council. 
K-12 Operations at Lansing Community College is a proud collaborator of the Mason Promise Scholarship. The Mason Promise Scholarship is a community organization of volunteers that guarantees funding for two years of Lansing Community College education to selected Mason Public School students. For more information on the Mason Promise Scholarship at LCC, please visit lcc.edu slash hope. 